this morning, I wanted to uh, take just a, a, a bit of time and talk into the whole area of um, Jesus is standing in front of us as individuals and as as a church as well at the start of a brand new calendar year, and he's standing in front of us for a reason, because in the life and the love and the heart of Jesus is a massive invitation. That's always been his invitation. And depending on how we reply or respond to that invitation depends upon the degree to which we enjoy or enter into the fullness of that invitation. Like you can say yes to going to a good party. You can say yes to an invitation. But you can, you can go to the party and you can sit in the corner of the room and not engage. And it's just like that with God. He's pouring out this invitation to people to come and enter into an experience and a life that he has in his heart for them and in his kingdom for them. And you can either give yourself wholly to that invitation, knowing that it's going to require faith and risk and um, anticipation and expectation and all of these things based on his character, or you can say, well, thanks, but I just want to sit on the sideline and watch. That's up to you and me. That's got nothing to do with the character of who he is and everything to do with how we are in the condition of our heart and our attitude. He stands before each of us and he offers us an invitation to life in the words that he said to his first disciples and he says to us, it's a, it's, a, it's a word that has never changed. And I think that's why it got inscripturated and put into the word, into the scriptures. When Jesus comes to people, he says these words, You follow me. Not do what you want, I'll kind of follow you. The invitation from the living Christ the one who lived, died, resurrected and ascended, comes to you in the power of his Holy Spirit. Even this morning during our worship, his tangible sense is very near, very close. Hearts are opening up to him this morning in new and fresh ways. But he's coming to you and he's saying, how about this year you follow me? It sounds very simple, and it is. But he stands with a full sense of a heart to give us everything that he has won for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Now, we all usually have a perception on what life is, or living life, or living the life. Um, you know, there's, a, there's an advert on TV where the guys from... Um, BCF, uh, boating, camping, fishing. You know, they, they, they advertise um, everything from eskies to fold-out chairs to the best lures to tents to sleeping bags, you name it, the best ones or the whole range that's available. But what, there's this great advert where there's these two guys and they're sitting in their um, fold-out camping chairs, sitting under a tree, 
somewhere, it, it kind of looks like it's near the surf or something like that, a beachside sort of setting. And as they're sitting there, one guy reaches over to his, you know, he, he, he kind of puts his feet up, his chair puts his feet up, and he, uh, uh, but the other guy, he gets up out of his chair, he goes to his esky and grabs a beer, and then this guy with his feet up in his chair, he kind of has this secret little compartment in the side of his chair where he pulls out a, a pre-cooled beer that's just waiting for him in that chair. And you, you, you get that vibe coming through the advert, like these guys have found the life. They are living the life. They, they couldn't think of a moment more wonderful than to just be there with their little gadgets, their cold beer, their fishing stuff, and sitting by the beach and they're going, you can, you can almost smell it through the television, this idea of, oh, yeah, yeah, we're living the life. Oh, it's blissful. There you go. That's a great word. Thank you, Anna. Blissful. Anna's entering into that right now. The sense of there's this life to be lived. And everyone is busy bombarding us as consumers in our world, saying, we have got an understanding of life that you all need to come and live with us. And then what culture does is we spend huge amounts of time, energy and resource trying to recreate what they're inviting us into. And we spend a lot of time and energy and money on that in the hope that we can live the life. Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that whether it is Sanctuary Cove on the Gold Coast, living on the canals with a luxury yacht, or even if it for you may just be as simply being able to brew your own home brew beer in the garage shed down the back and sit there after all that effort and enjoy it. Whatever your perception of life is, I want to suggest to you at the start of this year, Jesus is standing with each and every one of you and saying, I have a life for you to live. As the Son of God, as the risen Saviour, as the adventurous King and Friend, the first risen brother, he stands here and says, I've got a life for you to live. And even now, there'll be, you know, at the start of a year, little impressions and visitations and senses of God drawing and tapping on our hearts and beginning to seed our creative mind and thinking with these ideas of, oh, the adventure of God that's calling to me and drawing me forward. This year, Jesus says, follow me. He has a life for you and I to live. You see, in the face of everything that the world and people want to tell us what real life is, real life is not something, it's not a situation, it's not a series of principles, it's not anything other than being in a dynamic relationship with Jesus. This is the biblical witness of life. And in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus said this. He said, whoever rejects the Son will not see life. 
John 3.36. In other words, whoever rejects the Son. In other words, the Son has made, and in, and in that context in John 3, is making himself known to people. He is not hiding. He is not mysterious. He is revealing himself to people. And he says, those who reject the Son of God won't have life. So to the degree that we say, yes, Lord, is the degree to we entering into the life of the kingdom of God and the heart of the Father and the purposes and plans of God's saving work in the earth. To the degree that we say no and say reject that invitation is the degree that we won't enter into life. There is this dynamic sense of relationship here. It's not all just completely like, uh, uh, you know, principles and words. This is about a relationship with Jesus. And this year, Jesus stands before us. He's standing even here in this room, seeking our attention, seeking our hearts. And he's saying, do you want to live life, Vineyard Pine Rivers? And do you want to live my life for you? To enter into his life for us, we must first surrender our perception of life. We must first surrender it to him. And at the start of this year, he's been hot in hot pursuit of me. And he's asking me to surrender what I think life is all about yet again so that I can have everything that he has in his heart for me to live. And I know that he's in hot pursuit of you as well. Even as Jesus said, my father's always at work for our greater good. But first we need to sort of surrender these self-protective rejection and even self-determined and self-generated understandings of what life is for the life that he has. If you've got your Bible, I want you to open it, Luke, or your phone app, Luke 19, or you can uh, read along on the screen up there, Luke 19. Now, this is a, a fantastic interaction. I just love this account where Jesus meets with Zacchaeus on the road uh, one day, and um, it's, it's a wonderful um, experience or context. Let me just sort of set the scene for you a bit here. So many of you may have read or heard this story, but for those of you who haven't, um, let me just sort of introduce the two main characters, or there's three kind of characters in here. The first one, obviously, Jesus. We'll let him explain himself. The, the second is Zacchaeus. Just to give you an idea, Zacchaeus, he's a man who worked for the Roman government, all right? And his job was to collect tax. Now, we love tax collectors, don't we? We love them with all our heart and with great enthusiasm and a great sense of joy. Oh, we love tax collectors, don't we? That's how we approach tax collectors, isn't it? Well, he's a tax collector. And the tax collector, his job is to take money from the citizens that is due to give to, in this case, uh, the Roman government. And um, that was done on the sale of anything, of any goods and services type of thing, and earnings and so forth. Taxes would be paid. Um, now, in Jesus' time, the thing that really sort of stuck under the ribs of the people of Israel at this time 
is that every time they had to pay tax, it was kind of like just a bit of a, oh, that hurts. Because what they're doing in that giving of a tax is they're saying we're acknowledging we're actually underneath the lordship of another government. And as much as we want to say we're under the government of the living God, this really sticks and really pinches when we have to give money because we're acknowledging that Caesar is king. And they didn't like that. So the people didn't like that at all. They understood themselves to want to be a nation that was free under God. And yet they had to yield and submit to Roman law and authority. And so every time Zacchaeus turns up, he's like the little face of the big guy at the big end of town that everyone just hates. Everyone just hate this guy. He reminds us of all of the captivity we're under and all the freedom that we long for. You imagine walking around being that kind of person to people? <laughs> it's like much loved, not. So anyway, there's, there's Zacchaeus, probably, maybe I would say probably dealing with a few sort of... Um, Issues of his own self-worth and self-esteem due to the way that people would treat him and speak about him and think about him and act towards him. Let alone the fact that the scripture in a minute makes a point of recognizing that Zacchaeus was a short man. <laughs> it's like, I think even the way that the scripture was written there is like, he's a short guy. We've got to pay attention to that. Anyways, so this is Zacchaeus. He was not particularly popular. He was even disliked. But let's read the scripture. Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus enters Jericho and was passing through, and a, a man there by the name of Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being sh a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So... He ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter, he's gone to be the, to be the guest of a sinner. You can just kind of feel that vibe of the crowd like, that stinks. He's gone with that sinner to put a nice word on it. What about us, the people of God? But Zacchaeus is having dinner there with Jesus. And then it goes on, the scripture says, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I'll pay them back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek, it should be to seek and save what was lost. That's... There's a lot in this encounter that happened between Zacchaeus and Jesus. I often wonder what it is that happened in the conversation between the, the verses there where it says, 
He welcomed him to home. The people called him, you know, had a shot at Jesus for going to have a dinner with this guy. And then all of a sudden, Zacchaeus stands up and makes this great confession of life in, Jesus, in response to who Jesus is in his home. Now, I, gotta, I don't know what went on in that moment. The Bible doesn't tell us what went on in that moment. But I can only imagine something pretty significant took place. And I think the first thing that the scripture does tell us that took place was that Jesus stopped and engaged with Zacchaeus's life. Jesus is engaging with us too at the start of a year. And you might feel like you're up a tree or stuck in a creek without a paddle or whatever, trying to get a look at Jesus as he's passing through. But he wants to stop at the start of the year and say, I'm coming to your house for lunch. Don't you love the bravado of Jesus in that? He didn't wait for an invite. He didn't wait for the, gosh, I hope Zacchaeus notices me here and invites me. He just barged into Zacchaeus' life, much like he wants to do and is doing with our lives all the time. He's like barging in without invitation. But that's the nature of a loving God who is in hot pursuit of all of us so that we might have his life and his fullness and his abundance and his joy in our every waking moment and the things we put our hand to. He's always barging in. I want to just quickly talk about Darien fruit. I don't know, has anyone been to Southeast Asia and had Darien fruit? Durian fruit, sorry, durian fruit. Oh, why did I say Darian? I know why I said that. I'm meeting a guy I haven't seen for a long time called Darian next weekend. But anyway, durian fruit. Durian fruit. Who's had durian fruit? Hands up. Yeah, well, well, there it is. Straight away off the bat, someone says the smell. The smell. Well, durian fruit is known as the king of the fruit of Southeast Asia. And durian fruit is this kind of fruit that's very kind of uh, deceptive. Because on the one hand, it stinks like hell. I was reading online this week, one commentator on his thoughts on how to best describe the smell of durian fruit was this. He said it was, just imagine turpentine mixed with onion and old gym socks. That's the kind of aroma that it has. Now, that may be an unfair bit of commentary, but that's this guy's experience of it. And most people (laughs) will write about it online saying, this fruit just, it stinks. It really stinks. And it, like, it stinks like hell. (laughs) But if you can get past the stink and actually bring yourself to taste it, now I'm getting a nod from Melvin here, do you like, do you like, you, you do, you do. It's got it, they say it has a taste like heaven. I could never get past the smell of hell myself to get to the taste of heaven. But they say that it tastes like heaven. So durian fruit has this kind of deceptive way about it. It's like, it's, it's, almost, it's almost lying to you the whole time. And one of the things that 
I, I, I think God wants to invite all of us this year is to get past the lies and the deceptions of the things that you've just taken on as life and the deceptive nature of them. Now, a, a lie is, is, is basically just an intentional, an intentional action or thought or activity to mislead, to deceive, or to ultimately confuse. And the Bible tells us very clearly that there is a source of confusion, there is a source of um, intentional deception that is at work in the, in the earth. And, and the biblical witness tells us that that is Satan. Right from the get-go in the book of Genesis and right through, we see the, the activity of one who wants to lie to you the whole time and bring deception to you and speak confusion to you. And in fact, Jesus said this about him in John eight forty four. He said, when he lies, he is speaking his native language because he's the father of lies. In, in other words, everything that comes from that, that, that fountain of demonic voice and activity both to you, around you, and into the earth its very nature and activity is to deceive, to confuse, and to intentionally leave you in that place of being caught by lies. You can re- read this in Genesis 3 where, where, where Adam and Eve are having this amazing life experience with God in the garden. And there, God says, just don't eat of that and you can have everything else. And you'll have a great life and we'll walk together. And the enemy or Satan in that account comes and says two things. He says, well, if you do eat that, you won't die. That's the first lie. And the second lie he said was, God just doesn't want you to eat that because if you do, you'll be like God. Well, that's the second lie. Well, Because the second lie is that the prior to that, God had already said, that this creation of ours, Adam and Eve, they are our image bearers in the likeness of God. Relationally, physically, emotionally, the whole, the whole deal. So they were already like God. But the enemy wants to lie. And he, and he continues to lie through culture, through our, through our pursuits, through um, invitation to deliberately confuse our life. Now, how do some of these lies manifest in our context today? Well, I just scratched out a few. If I can just control my environment, I know life will be okay. You'd think after a while we would realise that that just isn't truth. If I could just get that promotion and that extra bit of cash flow, everything will be better. I mean, everything will be better if I could just get that. If I can just lose another 5kg, I will be completely happy with the way I look. (laughs) If I could just ignore that pain that's deep in my soul, if I could just ignore that pain and just kind of get busy, I'll be fine. If I can just try and make my spouse or my children or even my parents or my in-laws 
to be the kind of people I really know that they should be, then my life will be wonderful. This is all just lies. It's just, but we spend so much time under the lordship of those lies. Jesus has come to offer us life. But first, like Zacchaeus, we need to somehow surrender the lie to receive the life. The life in Jesus. Like I said earlier, life is not someone or something. I love being a part of a family. Um, getting up each day reminds me that I'm alive because when I get up each day, I, I have to engage with, well, the first person I turn to is my wife. There's another person there I have to walk life with today. And then not long after that, I go out into the kitchen and I usually have a bit of a, uh, you know, I have to sort of shoulder Luke out of the way to get to the wheat picks so that there's some left. But I have to engage as a dad with my kids. Like yesterday, we tried to build some uh, bedside tables. Um, it helped me to know that I was alive because of the interaction of relationship. And I'll do it this way. Well, why don't we do it? What about the instructions? Forget the instructions. What about, you know, all that. It's all there. Um, I love being a part of a family because it teaches me how to pray teaches me how to pray and it teaches me that I'm alive. I, I, I love being, having to participate in the dreams and the hopes that, that Nicole has for her life. I love participating in the dreams and the hopes that, is, that are forming in my children as, as they're growing. It, it, the, because it teaches me and it helps me to know I'm alive. I'm alive and I'm living a life because of my interaction with them and their presence. I love being able to be with my family through the, the daily challenges of like, gosh, that's not in the budget, but how are we going to do that? It lets me know I'm alive. I love being a part of the celebrations of, of the moments and the memories and the the, the happenings of great joy and celebration. It, it teaches me I'm alive and I'm living. I love holding my wife. I love hugging my children. Although it's a bit harder to catch them now because they're running so fast. But they let me know that I'm alive and living a life. And I love being a part of a church family. Because being a part of a church family lets me know that I'm alive and that the grace of God that's on my life, that's on your life, is given so that we together might declare his goodness and let the world know that he's great and wonderful. I just loved that during worship this morning. There was that little pickup that, that, that obviously the Holy Spirit was having a conversation there with Trent as he was leading worship and he was just aware enough just to stop and go, and God, just like when Moses couldn't lift up his hands and he was exhausted from the experience of trying to lead the people of God, the nation of Israel, you gave him some people to come and hold his hands up so that the purposes of God could come forth. Isn't it great to know that there's 
people that will... I, I love being a part of a church because people come and hold my hands up, hold your hands up. Look out for your well-being. Pray for your joy, for your circumstances, for your hope. It, it helps us to know we're alive. I'm laboring the point here. But life is not engaging with things it or principles or philosophies. Life is found in personal, dynamic interaction with another. And ultimately, Jesus. If you want life, I mean, if you want to be able to, at the end of 2016, have got that, that orange and squeezed it so every drop of juice comes out of it, and you have experienced everything that that piece of fruit offered, follow him. Follow Jesus. Follow him. One, uh, John 1, 4 reads this, In him, Jesus, was life. Just let that land. In him, that is Jesus, was life. Not stuff. Not was life. In John 14, 6, Jesus said of himself, I am the life. In John 10, 10, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life abundant, life abundant. As this year begins, I want to ask us all, are we engaging with Jesus, the one who's offering us life? Now, there is a difference between living a lie and living the life of Christ. And it's simply that little letter F in the is the difference between the two words, between a lie and life. It's the little F there in the word life is the difference. And I want to suggest that this morning, that little F has a massive implication. I think the first thing is that that F stands for freedom. Simply put, freedom is the absence of slavery. And I think somehow in that interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus, the F came into play. Freedom came for Zacchaeus. And we'll explore that in just a minute, what that looked like for him. And as much as all of the invitations from the father of lies that is presented to us, if we pursue those lies, we're left as slaves and we're left deeply unsatisfied and we're left with hearts that are crying out please someone give me life real life paul wrote it in galatians 5 1 he said it's for freedom that christ has set you free the f is for freedom in life to engage with jesus is to engage with a life of freedom in him like we couldn't ever imagined to author for ourselves. 
Zacchaeus came into profound amounts of life and freedom in the moment that he encountered the reality of Jesus. And again, I want to, like Paul says, encourage those of us in the room who've maybe journeyed with Jesus for a long time and are still feeling like we're slaves. I want to suggest to you today to adopt the words of Paul and when he says, Stand firm and do not let yourself, do not let yourself be burdened again by yokes of slavery. That was Paul's counsel to the people of Jesus. Stand firm and do not let yourself. In other words, the implication is you have a part to play in how much of a slave you feel. Paul's saying it here. You, me, do not let yourself be yoked by that slavery, by that spirit and that work of the enemy and those lies of the enemy. Because in Luke 4.18, Jesus heralded his activity and his, his, his life in Luke 4.18 where he says, I have come to proclaim to everyone who is in bondage freedom. 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 The other part of that F I also want to just touch on this morning is I think it also stands for forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is that act of pardoning in spite of. Pardoning in spite of. In in spite of personal slights, in, in spite of personal shortcomings, in spite of person's errors or a person's sin or a person's brokenness or the manifestation of their shame. In spite of, let the life of Jesus be yours this year. Let the forgiving power of Jesus flow through you to others. You see, when Jesus walked and ministered, his, his very presence enabled people to know that they were forgiven. This was before he went to the cross. He knew who he was and he knew his commission. And his commission was to declare to those who are in bondage, you are forgiven. I'm here to let you know, the Father wants you to know you're forgiven. Now go and sin no more. Now he did that pre the cross. But then the cross was the full stop so that, that what he did pre the cross would be established forever for everyone to know. You're forgiven. You are forgiven. I am forgiven. There's nothing more powerful than to saying to someone, I forgive you. It sets them free and liberates you all at the same time from any form of bondage or slavery. I forgive you. Remember what Jesus said as his last words when he ultimately went to the cross? Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. It's the heart of God. It's the lifeblood of Jesus. Forgiveness and freedom. Forgiveness and freedom. Forgiveness and freedom. So this year, 
you will experience in the invitation of Jesus. I have every confidence in him because it is him who is inviting you to follow himself. And with him will come an incredible flow of continual freedom towards us. Invitations to freedom. Continually. The tap won't be turned off. The tap won't be turned off from his end. You must hear that. Because if you think the tap is being turned off from his end, we don't understand who our Father is. The Father of Jesus Christ. The Father of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We don't understand him if we think he's going to turn the tap off when it comes to freedom. And the work of the enemy will want you to second guess that continual stream of freedom in Christ. Be careful of the slavery mentality that the enemy wants to sling at us this year. If we want to see the, uh, the kingdom advanced in our own soul, in our own relationships, and through us, through our church here, and to the world, we must have a mindset and an understanding that there is a continual flow of freedom in God through Jesus Christ for us and for the world. And right in the thick of that stream is this wonderful flow of forgiveness. 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 Oh my goodness. You know, if only the world had a perception that the people of the kingdom bring freedom and forgiveness. Hot hot dog. I mean, that would like, that could change a nation. That could change a nation. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But let's, let's live the life of, of God's heart. Let's be dynamically involved with Jesus, where all our sin is forgiven, where we do become his sons and daughters, where we do live the eternal life of God now and into the age to come, where we are delivered from the, the authority of the enemy's rule and reign and are transferred into the kingdom of God, as Colossians 1 tells us. That we're going to live a year in Christ where he dwells in us. A year in Christ where he is declaring, making and releasing the new created order that you really are in him. Let's live a year as declared by God as righteous beings. Righteous beings. In other words, we're right with God. It's okay there. We're okay there. We're accepted by God and we're living in relationship with him. Now, let me finish off with this. I think that's what happened in the silence of those verses, (laughs) that the verses don't pick up. This is just my big assumption. But I think Jesus forgave Zacchaeus. And in response to Jesus, Zacchaeus realized who he really was. And the scripture goes on to say he realized he was the son of Abraham. Now, when Jesus said that, the crowd, they couldn't wait to lynch Jesus for that. Because the context when Jesus said, Abraham salvation has come to this guy's house today. He's truly a son of Abraham. What he's doing is he's taking the people of God right back, right back through their own history, pre-Moses, 
pre the Mosaic law, pre all the blessings and cursings covenant and taking them way, way back to the very heart of God where God called a guy called Abram, a pagan man who worshipped other deities and practised all the culture of that time. And into the midst of that culture, God spoke to this man and called him out. Just graciously, God said, Through you, Abram, I'm going to bless the world. And he made these wonderful promises to Abram. And there was this, you remember the story where Abram's like, he's got no, no son. And so he calls out to God and his wife is, is um, struggling with infertility. She's old as well as he is old. And yet somehow in the kindness of God, they conceive. And ultimately they have a son. And then this great I am, this God of Abraham, calls Abraham to the mountain. Come up to the mountain and bring this most precious gift I've given you, the life of your son. Bring him up with you and I want you to sacrifice him to me on an altar. Now for us listening to that, we kind of go, what kind of God would do that? But you've got to understand for Abram, and his world, and his time, and his culture and context that he's come out of, that is an everyday occurrence where people are sacrificing children to the gods. It's not a big step for him to actually go, well, okay, all the other gods ask of this, so okay, I'll do that. So it wasn't a big leap for him to go to that place in his thinking, whereas it is for us. We find that just completely abhorrent. But for Abram, it wasn't. It was like, okay, this is what the gods do. And so he takes his son Isaac up to the mountain, and Isaac even asks on the way, where's the sacrifice to the God that we're going to worship? And Abram says, God will provide. And knowing that he's about to sacrifice his son, So he takes, ultimately, once the altar is built, the wood is gathered, he grabs his son Isaac, his long-treasured, long-precious, long-hoped-for, long-desired son, so that the blessing of God that God had said would be on Abram's life would have a generational line to flow down into the earth so that the whole earth would be blessed by this God. He puts this son on the altar and he raises the knife to take his life. And as he raises the knife to drive it down into Isaac and take his life, the Lord says, stop. Stop, Abram. I don't want you to kill your son. And then, there in the thicket nearby, God provides an animal for the sacrifice. And in that moment, this this is an incredible encounter, because in this moment, Abraham's God is making a stark and declared difference to every other God and being. One is he will not be the God who takes the life of children like every other God. 
but in fact he will be the God who defends and stands for the preciousness and the value of life in every child. And secondly, he says, I will be the God who will provide the sacrifice for you. And Jesus says to the crowd watching Zacchaeus, this guy, see the way he's behaving now? Selling everything, realizing he's, there's a better life to be lived. It's not about wealth. It's not about power. It's not about, it's, it's, it's not about any of that. He, he, he became a true son of Abraham whose God would not demand from him his life, but ultimately his God would give him his life. And at the same time, Zacchaeus came into the forgiveness of the grace of God. He was a son of Abram. And so the people at that time, they were cranky at this because they had turned this son of Abraham thing into a, you've got to be born in this family line and behave this way under this covenant and if you don't you can't be a son of Abraham and you can't inherit the kindness of God in your life and Jesus just takes this one rough old tax collector sinner short as he was stinking wealthy as he was (laughs) took him and lifted him up and he says see how this guy's interacting with me That's what the sons of Abraham really look like. They pour out their life for the poor. They realize that they've been forgiven and they've entered into salvation life, the kingdom of God on the earth as it is in the heavens. That's what the sons of Abraham really look like. It's an amazing... So I can understand why the guys around Jesus hearing that were like, how dare you say that? (laughs) How dare you say that? Friends, this year, if Jesus barges in on you while you're up the tree or down the creek or wherever it is you are, and I know he will, I have <laughs> every confidence he knows exactly where you are and he is in, in incredible pursuit for relationship with you to bring you into the sonship of Abraham through Jesus Christ, the one who was offered in your place and mine so that we could know God forever, both now and into the age to come. Let's take him home for lunch. Now, we think that's kind of a bit of a, you know, giggle point, and it is in some senses. But culturally, when, when, when Zacchaeus took him into lunch at his home, what he's saying is, the scripture is telling us is, There is no greater place of intimacy in that context and culture than to sit with people around the dinner table. They're literally saying, Zacchaeus is saying, I'm welcoming you into the very heart of who I am and everything my life entails. Let's eat. Let's eat. Are we going to let Jesus in and eat with him this year? I think this year, that's the first place that Jesus wants to meet with all of us. And I find it funny that I'm even talking about this because Nicole's been at me about changing a, a habit that we have in our home, which is we tend to 
everyone gets dinner and then goes and finds different places to sit. Be it on the couch, be it at the bench, be it in front of a TV, be it in the bedroom, be it wherever. And she said, we've got to get back to the table. And, you know, we've been eating at the dinner table for, what, like two weeks now? <laughs> We're breaking all sorts of records. We're breaking all sorts of records. About two weeks. And you know what? We, we are engaged in our lives more than we have been for a whole lot of time, a long time. We're just sharing stories and laughing lots and lots of jokes. And, and, but just, we're just being with each other around the dinner table is, is, is creating life for us. Jesus wants to eat with you this year. Let him come to the table. And why don't you turn up at the table, even as we're trying to turn up in the practical to the table of our home? Whoever rejects the sun will not see life. But this year there is life in the making and it's made in Jesus for all of us. I, 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 just, want to, um, I just want to pray and then um, we'll do some ministry time around that stuff and, uh, and these words of knowledge that the team has heard the Lord on. So let's just pray. Father God, we give you thanks for the scriptures and um, just thanks that just that story, that account of Zacchaeus and Jesus you saw such value and richness in that, to put that in your holy scriptures so that as we would read it and meditate on it and think through it, we would discover the invitation to a life in God that we could never have dreamed up for ourselves. But Lord, today, I pray that in the name of your Son, Jesus, the power of your love would bring freedom to each of our lives from any of the lies of the enemy. Any of the lies of the enemy that sought to shape and keep us captive. And I also pray in the name of Jesus that there would be not just freedom, but there would be forgiveness known to the depths of our being that we are forgiven and that salvation would come to our home today. And that we realize we are the sons of Abraham through Jesus. And we get to inherit the blessings of God to be a blessing to the world. Lift up our eyes, O oh God. Lift up our hearts. Friends, do not let yourselves be yoked by slavery again. Stand firm. Stand firm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.